Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. We're in Hebrews, the ninth chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read, and we will jump right in. Chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which where the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a gold urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations have been thus made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and he but only once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? With the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you draw near to us in this. Lord, I pray that the words in here uh, would resonate deep in our heart, that you have come uh, not just to wash the outside of the cup, uh, but to deal with the inside, our conscience and our hearts and our minds, Lord. Uh, Maybe we'd be overwhelmed by the goodness of that. Uh, would we feel uh, the reality of that Holy Spirit come and make it so? I pray that in your name. Amen. So for the past several years, uh, we've gone to Colorado for a vacation. Um, the mountains, the views as far as the eye can see, uh, the weather, the lack of humidity, the lack of all the things that I'm allergic to here are great. Um, not to mention the endless mountain biking trails and trails to go hiking with the, with the kids uh, are wonderful as well. But you know what isn't great? Kansas. You have to drive through Kansas to get there. If you've ever driven uh, the stretch of I-70 across uh, Kansas, you know it takes forever. Right? And it's seemingly flat, endless fields, lots of cows. Every once in a while, there's some windmills. Uh, but one of the regular occurrences for our family when we're making that, that trip in our loaded down adventure mobile, a.k.a. a, a van, uh, is not long after we get in the car and many, many, many times in Kansas, uh, my boys will holler out the favorite refrain of no parent anywhere, uh, that are we there yet? Or in my boy's case, uh, are we almost to the next stop because they get prizes when we stop? 
What makes the refrain even worse is my boys will usually yell it with headphones on, uh, so incredibly loud. If you've met my boys, uh, which you have, you know that they aren't exactly quiet. So with their inside uh, voice on top of the loss of regulated volume awareness with headphones on, the refrain, are we there yet, is uh, unpleasantly screechingly loud. Uh, and yet we hear it many times over the 12-hour trip when we take it. So we'll look back at them and say, pull off the headphones so you can hear me. Uh, hey, guys, be patient. We have a ways uh, to go. And, and here's the marker that they do every time. They'll put the headphones back on, uh, and they'll escape back into uh, a movie that they are watching. That doesn't bug me very much in Missouri or in Kansas. There's only so many seek and find games you can play. There's only so many uh, signs and stuff that you can pretend to be interested in. But when we get to Colorado, and specifically when we get past Denver, we start making our way, our trek up into uh, the actual mountains. At that point, everything looks like a postcard. Like everything is pretty awesome uh, to look at. And yet because of the uh, long drive and all of the hours that we've put in so far, they don't really care about the postcard or the cool things that they're going to pass. They just want to watch more movies to get the time to pass by them. They want to escape uh, to get the trip kind of over with. Uh, so they, they don't really want to be in the drive anymore. They want to move on to the next part of uh, the vacation. So they don't care about the waterfalls that they're going to miss as we go through uh, the mountains, they don't care about the moose that they may not see, the really cool rock formations. Uh, they don't care about the sketchy drop-offs that, that give their mother heart palpitations, and they don't care about the, the, the runaway uh, tracks for all of the, the trucks when their brakes go out. They, they don't care about much of that. What am I getting at? There's a point when we can get bored and just kind of move on with things, and that's what my boys do on long road trips, and and here's the thing, it's a little bit of our temptation uh, here in this section of Hebrews as well. We've been here for a while. In this kind of dense section, uh, in the 6th, 7th, 8th, now ninth chapter, we, we kind of started into a section that opened up talking about this guy named uh, Melchizedek and a lot of references to priests and high priests and sacrifices and final sacrifices and old covenants and new covenants and intercessory prayer and a path to God and the throne of glory and the presence of God and temporary and eternal and promises and oaths and family lines and lineages over and over and over and over again. Uh, the temptation is really to get lulled into sleep by these disconnected references or these references that don't feel like they're very natural to, to our world and our lives right now. To begin to think uh, just kind of mentally, I've got this and, and wait for the next topic to arise. But if we do that, we're going to miss the beauty uh, of what the Lord has for us in this specific text. We're going to miss more than the, than the boys missing a moose on the side of the road. We're going to miss the comfort that the Lord wants to give you specifically related to your conscience and your heart. It's easy to assume that 2,000-ish years after this text was written that it's a little bit irrelevant to modernity. Like, we don't have Old Testament, Old Covenant tabernacles in the sunny center of our city. Uh, we don't have Levitical priests in our lives. We're not looking for people to scatter the ashes of, hef of heifers for us. And the, the term ceremonially clean is, is not really in our normal uh, vernacular. With all of that, if we zoom out and look at verse 9, though, we do find the commonality. Verse 9 says this specifically, those things cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Even if you aren't looking for a priest to make a sacrifice for you, 
Even if you're not hyper-focused on, on uh, Yom Kippur, the, the, the day that the high priest went in and made the sacrifice, even if thousands of years stand between us now and, and them back then, we still must deal with the inner reality of the brutal condemner, which they did as well. We must navigate our consciences, and we have this need in the human heart to quiet the voice inside of us. What do we mean by our conscience or perfecting the the conscience? There's uh, often thoughts that we deal with quite regularly or flashbacks or crippling uh, moments of shame that kind of go into our head and we feel them internally um, related to our lives and our actions and maybe even our lack of actions in our lives. So what do we do when all of a sudden we remember that sin that got us again? Or, or what do we do when temptation comes roaring in really quickly and, and, and we kind of bit on it and, and we didn't think that we were going to? And what do we do with, when we kind of realize the anger that we just directed at someone that there was absolutely no reason to do that? Uh, what do we do with the conversation that we just had that we know wasn't truthful? What do we do when we realize, man, I just manipulated that person? I just used them. I gossiped about them. What do we do with the the lustful thought that comes flying into our heart first thing in the morning and we didn't exactly push it away? What do we do with the anger or hatred that we allowed uh, to linger? What do we do knowing that we just did something wrong? What do we do knowing in our missional communities we've been praying for moments of mission and then this perfect opportunity to share the gospel came up and you said, I don't want to do it. What do you do with that? What do you do when the Holy Spirit asks you to do something and you say, no? What do you do when the, 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 the Lord begins to ask you to repent and trust him in an area and you say, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to. And what do you do with the flood of memories of the things that you did long ago come into your mind and haunt you? I think you get the idea. Whatever it is, you can kind of insert it here. What do you do with the clear uh, realization of your sinfulness? What do you do with the unavoidable views of your mistakes? And what do you do with the shame that they create? And how do you worship God with the view of your sin right in front of you? And how do you approach the holiness of God, understanding the weakness that you have? And if you and I are so weak, why in the world would God even want us to approach him? See, that's a specific matter at hand here in the text. The problem with our conscience, with our minds, with our hearts. And that problem didn't start in the book of Hebrews. And and it didn't just start with us. It, It started all the way back not too long after creation. Genesis chapter 3, we go back to a scripture that we read a lot. Verse 6 through 11 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, uh, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? 
We see more than just kind of an old story here in this text. We see a window into humanity and a repeat story that plays itself out in our lives. If we kind of set the stage, God had created and he said of his creation that, that it was good. There was no defilement, no shame, no sin, no anything to kind of feel awkward about. Uh, just the creation that God had invited humanity into. What's beautiful about this text is in this part of creation, Adam and Eve walked with the Lord. Their regular days involved the presence of God, the glory of God, knowing God, walking with God. This was normal. It's a reoccurring reality. This didn't happen just every once in a while. This is what they did. Can you wrap your mind around regularly sensing and experiencing God? Not once a month or a season or a year or a decade or a lifetime, but all the time, every day. Well, we begin to understand with Genesis 3 is this isn't supposed to be a, a fantasy. This is what we were created for. This is what our hearts are wired for. This is where we are meant to find joy and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction and peace is through a connection with the Father. But when sin entered to uh, humanity, it did something kind of interesting. It created this emotional awareness and this conscious awareness of our wrongdoing and this awareness caused them to run and hide from God's presence. You see it in the text, Adam and Eve sinned and as soon as they did, the shame of it, the awareness of it changed their actions. That is, their internal feelings then affected their external realities and the way that they lived. So what did they do? They, they, they took some fig leaves and they covered their nakedness at once. Mind you, think of the storyline of what's happened here so far. God didn't boom down a, a, a scathing rebuke at them and, and then after that they made fig leaves. God hadn't chastised them they, on their own, felt these feelings that caused them to hide, to avoid things, specifically to avoid the thing they needed most. So they covered themselves with figs as a manifestation of their inner feelings. See, often people focus on the idea of, of maybe physical nudity in this story, and they miss it. This isn't the, the big deal of this story. The aha isn't this is where clothing was invented. The big deal was that people were meant to exist in a way that didn't require constant cover. They were meant to be fully seen and not need a, a shield uh, to, to go in between them. And yet because of sin, we're always feeling the need to block a clear view of ourselves. You, you cannot fully see me. I have to hide. We feel the need to adjust the way that we are seen or, or perceived or the way that we appear. This is what happens when sin enters in and slams into the, to the human heart. Our identity gets kind of rocked and then we do things to try and feel better and undo the feelings of what feels wrong. Adam and Eve, through this, they hid themselves. They sinned and because of their sin, they hid from God. Now check out the detail. Even as God was pursuing them with his presence, they hid. When God came after them, and it doesn't say God came after them and pursued them in a blind rage. He came in a loving pursuit of them. And they reacted by avoiding the thing in which they were created to find their meaning. They hid from the presence of the Lord, from God himself. They assumed in their head that God would, would reject them and hurt them and, and crush them. So they, they kind of preemptively acted and hid from him. 
the words that kind of set heavy on me when reading uh, the text this week were, when God says, why did you hide? Adam, Adam answer, answered him, because I was naked. He didn't say, well, I hid because I ate the apple. He didn't say, I hid because I disobeyed your commands. The first thing he said, the, the thing in front of his mind was the way that he felt. I hid because I felt naked, because I felt dirty, because I, 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 I felt that way is the reason I, I needed to hide from you. And God asked him this question, who told you that you were naked, though? Because God hadn't said it. God doesn't respond with, of course you feel naked, you ungrateful. He doesn't scream, I can't believe you. I can't, I can't even stand to look at you. He just responds with that question, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you couldn't be in my presence? Who told you to avoid me? Especially when I'm coming to look for you. The answer seems to be some combination of themselves and the serpent did. See, see the pattern. Sin causes men and women to hide from the presence of God even when it's available to them. If there's not much you hear from this text or today, that, that would be one thing I, I want us to hear. Sin causes men and women to hide from the presence of God even when it's available. Because the conscience will, will whisper, you're too dirty. Your, your nakedness makes you unable to get close. Now, I want to be really careful because their sin had caused a massive, massive problem. I don't want to underplay what had happened here. And their conscience wasn't working completely wrongly. What they had done was a really huge deal. There are those who say any form of, of shame that, that, that you have or you, you get should be rejected. That rules that create shame or things that create shame, uh, like we kind of see in this text, should, should just be thrown out. Shame is actually the, the natural result of doing something wrong. It's meant to be a checks and balances system. The conscience and shame, therefore, really aren't the enemy of humanity. The problem is the self and the serpent, the serpent will always tell you that when our, our shame is covered later on, that we still need to run and hide from God. The conscience will tell us that the path to God is broken, that we cannot use it because of our sin, when the reality is the path to God is wide open because of the work of Jesus. King Jesus went to war with the devil to make sure that we could come near to the Father again. So the battle becomes not to destroy and sear the conscience all the time, but to silence it when it accuses us and tries to keep us away from God wrongly. What does that have to do with worship regulations and the tabernacle? Well, let's look at the design and, and see the, uh, the story uh, and what it's telling us. The, the tabernacle was a movable area where the presence of God resided. If you can put up the, the big larger picture, there it is. Big movable th structure where the presence of God resided. Uh, it, it's not that God was confined uh, to this uh, little area or anything like that. It signified and represented the presence of God for the people in the old covenant. In this place, there was a thickness of the presence and glory and holiness of God the Father. Uh, as you look at the entire thing, it's about 150 feet long. It's about 75 foot wide. And around the outskirts of it stood this, this seven foot tall wall. And what we need to understand is this is like a, a first barrier 
uh, to the presence of God. People of Israel could come into that, that kind of first area uh, in, in that part of the tabernacle and they could worship there. So they could go uh, to the first stop, which you see if you want to put up the, the last picture, not uh, next one. Uh, on the right side, the very first thing is you walk in the, 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 the doors or the gate to this area. The first thing you'd find is this bronze altar. If they wanted to worship, they could go use that. Um, but they couldn't go any further. This first stop was as far as they could go. The presence of God was not available to them. All the way to the, to the left inside the tent is where the presence of God is. They could hit the first marker and go no further than that. The next stop or next marker is a bronze basin, the second thing in. And this is a, a washing station, if you will, where the priest would go perform these regular washings and these regular uh, rituals there. It wasn't for everyone. The average person could not use it. So imagine you're just a, a regular person who wants to get near to the, the, the presence of God, but all you can do is go to the very first marker. You can go no further and you can't see in, and you can't see God. Uh, there, there's a tent in front, and another veil in front of that, and doors in front of that. You, you can get to the first marker, and, and, and that's it. All you can do is wonder. You can't get past the bronze altar. You can't even see the tent. Uh, the tent of meeting is what the tent in the inner courts is called, and it's divided into two distinct sections. Um, Imagine how distant you would feel if you could get to the first marker and nothing else. You couldn't even peek in the tent, let alone get to the inner part where the presence of God is. In that tent of meeting in the first area inside is what is called the holy place. Only priests could go into this. Uh, there was no entry for others. No matter how bad they would want to go in, they can't. In this section, there was a candle stand with, with seven candles on it. Um, and this would be lit all the time. Remember, there's no windows here. There's no electricity here. The light was used for the priest to kind of do their, their regular activities. Uh, the, the, the whole light symbolized really the, the light of Jesus that he would give to uh, the world, even though the priest didn't understand it at that time. There was a table of bread in that first section as well with 12 loaves of bread also. This is consecrated bread. It would symbolize how Jesus would be the, uh, the, the bread of life to his people. There's an altar of incense in that intersection, that intersection as well, and it would kind of symbolize the, the constant prayers that Jesus would give later for his people. The whole thing was just kind of wrought with symbolism. But notice the, the altars outside, like the, the first two barriers, those are going to be made out of, go to the third picture again for me. Those are going to be made out of bronze, right? You can only get to the first one if you're a regular guy. Uh, and the first two are made out of bronze. But as you get inside the, the temple, everything's made out of gold. What's this doing? It's actually trying to teach you a message that the purity of things, the closer you get to the presence of God, the purity of things actually has to increase. There's a change in things, and also the, the restrictions of, of who and how can get close to God, those increase as well. God's presence is a big deal. You can't go all willy-nilly into the presence of God. There are stories in the Old Testament of people not observing the rules rightly around the presence of God and dropping dead. Then inside of uh, the Holy of Holies, that intersection inside of the tent, there's this massive veil that separates the holy of holies from the holy places. Now there's cherubim on the outside which symbolize a host of angels and the presence of the Lord inside. Inside that holy of holies would have been the, the Ark of the Covenant. 
Uh, inside the Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the, the Ten Commandments, the budded staff of Aaron, manna from the, the wilderness, and in this Holy of Holies, the presence of God. Again, keep remembering the order. If you're a regular person, you're not even close to this. You can't see it. You can't smell the incense from where you're at. You have the, you have the cheap seats, and you can't get any closer. Inside this Holy of Holies where the presence of God is, one man could go, the high priest. Could he go all the time? No, he could go there once a year. He could only enter once a year to make purification for himself and for the people. What's it trying to show you? It's another layer that separates the people from God. As a regular person, you must have felt a million miles away from the presence of God. The presence of God may as well have felt like it was on the moon to you. You are never going to get there. Look at what it says. All this complexity, all these rituals, all these layers of worship, all the gifts, all the sacrifices they couldn't actually do anything for your conscience. Think about how elaborate all of this was and all of these rules. They couldn't speak to or deal with the way that you feel in your heart. They covered you ceremonially. They, they, they had these external regulations uh, that, that, that they would declare you ceremonially clean, but they couldn't deal with the shame that you have or the conscience when it convicts you. So let that, let that sink in. The whole tabernacle was designed to kind of teach humanity that the presence of God is off limits for them because of their sin. It was to show them that they couldn't hardly even get close to God because of their sin. The chasm was enormous. The divide felt way too large to be able to get past that. And on top of that, the entire thing, not only could they not get close, the entire thing was worthless to silence a condemning heart. I think we probably know this to be true. No matter how hard you wash the external parts with water, it cannot deal with the heart. It'll never put a dent in it when you feel dirty inside, no matter how hard you scrub the outside. All the sacrifices, all the work, all the things that you do will not truly make you feel clean when your head hits the pillow. So in this moment of despair with the full view of how far people are from God in a clear sense that it's impossible to bridge the gap between humanity and God because of our sin with a howling conscience screaming you're way too dirty you're way too far off you are unlovable you will never get close to God you might as well give up you'll never close the gap with all of that in place then verse 11 stands as something beautiful but when Christ appeared like it looks like you are never getting anywhere near. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made by human hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of goats and cows, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal Redemption, not uh, temporary and not momentary. Christ secured something eternal that nothing else could ever do. We need to get the imagery of what these verses are telling us. Christ didn't wait for the perfect moment to slip into the physical tent, the holy of holies, covered by incense at the right time of the year, just like the, the high priest would. He didn't do that. Christ didn't sprinkle blood of some other animal that some other dude owned inside the tent. Christ shed his own blood. And look at the distinction of what it's saying. Christ did this not in a tent made by human hands. He didn't go into that, that outer tent that people could see. He went into the real thing, the real presence of God. Remember from when we read Revelation 4 the other week? 
regular high priest, they went into the copy, the, the, the shadow, the tent made by men. Christ entered into the real tent, to the presence of God, at the throne of God, and he did it by the power of his shed blood and the perfection of his shed blood. Earthly high priests could go into the, um, the, the presence of God in this physical tent. And as soon as they leave, the, the imagery that we need to see is they get to go in one time a year. They make some sacrifices. As soon as they leave, the, the, the veil shuts behind them and nobody can even see in there. When Christ goes in, he makes a sacrifice that is once for all. The final one, the last one, the perfect one. And, and the understanding is Christ didn't then walk out with the veil shutting behind and locking the presence of God in. What do we learn after the crucifixion of Christ? After Christ walks into the presence of God and gives the perfect sacrifice, the veil is torn in half. The barrier between humanity and God is destroyed. The gap is closed. Through Christ, sinners could draw near to God once again. Through Christ, what was lost by the first Adam is reconciled by the second Adam. Remember that picture of, uh, of the bigger tent. In the Old Testament and washing the outside, you're not getting past the first bronze thing. Christ has done let you go all the way into the Holy of Holies. He has made a way where it appears that there was going to be no way for you. Here's the other element that the author wants you to hear in the text. Not only has he made a way for you to get all the way into the presence of God, but he's done more than that. He's the perfect sacrifice, the last sacrifice. We've heard that, that, God, that Jesus makes a way into the presence of God, but the layer that is added into this text is he also deals with our conscience. The blood of goats and bulls might have dealt with what they called external purity, meaning if you, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, if you wash the right way and you put on the right clothes, and you ate the right things, and you didn't touch the wrong things, and you performed the right rituals, you could be declared ceremonially clean. This is an external sense. You hadn't touched something dirty and defiled the outside of who you are. The book of Leviticus goes into great detail of this ceremonial uh, purity and the specifications that go around it. But the understanding, again, is all those external rituals all the things that you do and touch and the clothes and things that you avoid, all of those things, no matter if you cross every T and dot every I, every bit of religious duty only goes skin deep. They may work to declare you clean from the outside in a physical, external sense. They don't do a thing for the inside, though. Jesus, however, does something drastically different, which is part of the great news of this text. He cleanses the inside, the heart. The author says it this way, the Old Testament high priests could uh, cover the outside by the blood of goats and bulls from the livestock that some other person owned, but then it flips things and goes, if, if they could cover the external by the blood of a bull, that your neighbor owns, how much more will the blood of Jesus cover? How much more will the blood of the perfect lamb of God cover? This is not some animal. This is God himself. And the question finds its answer in the text. The blood of Jesus washes away eternally and not temporarily. 
And the blood of Jesus washes the the full self, not just the outside of the cup. Think of the Gospels and Jesus dealing with the Pharisees all the time. It cleanses a person from the inside out, heart and all. How does it do that, though? How how does it do that? Because uh, that's the question that our heart needs answered. Okay, prove it. Because there's at times that you're saying the inside's clean, but the inside doesn't feel clean. Where our conscience should only be able to condemn us by telling us that there's still a debt that exists between us and God. Our conscience can only convict us by declaring that we have an outstanding bill, that somehow we stand in front of God still dirty, still unworthy, still unlovable, and still far off. When the reality is that our sin has been paid for in full and eternally. So the question is not, uh, do I have sin in my past or do I still mess up in sin sometimes? That's not the question. The question here in this text is, is the blood of Jesus great enough to cover it all? And the answer the author emphatically gives is it is. If the blood of goats could cover the external, how much more? How much more could the blood of Jesus cover? It covers the whole thing and eternally. Yes, there are actions that we've done that are not okay, that are not good, that have induced a level of shame, but the beauty of this text is Christ covers all of it, not part of it, all of it. Christ paid the debt for your sin, and instead of leaving the tent, here's the other thing that this text is trying to show us, that structure that holds the presence, instead of leaving like the other ones did uh, and leaving the presence of God away from you and me, Christ turns into the tent right in front of us. Follow the meaning here. The old covenant tent was the presence of God which kept sinners outside. The new covenant tent turns into Jesus, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ comes and is the embodiment of the person and presence of God, and that presence isn't, co- isn't kept away from you. It comes for you. Do you see the beauty of what the author is trying to tell you? Even when your mind and the enemy try and convict you of shame, do you see the beauty of what it is? Christ is the presence of God coming to find you when you hide. Right? The undoing of Genesis 3. Christ is the presence of God that pursues you even when, when you're trying to evade God because of the shame inside of you. Christ is the perfection and the presence of God and the closing of the gap. The whole Old Testament covenant taught you one message. You can't get anywhere near. A new covenant Jesus says, I'm coming after you. This is a beautiful, beautiful message. When our hearts condemn us and our consciences feel dirty, busted up, and worthless, what we end up needing to do then is speak the reality of the gospel to our conscience. Instead of doing dead works, so normally if we feel dirty, we'll kick in, no matter how long you've been around the, 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 the faith game of the church, normally if you feel dirty, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to either run away completely or you're going to double down into, perfection or into production. This is why he talks about dead works. When you feel dirty, instead of doing dead works, instead of trying to scrub yourself and clean yourself and, and pursue some sort of religious activity to try and close the gap and make you feel better, This text is saying, why don't you serve the living God as one with clean hands and a clean heart, not one desperately trying to clean your hands and your heart? Dead religion says you better do more to triple check that you are clean. The gospel says Christ has done it, so I am clean. That's why we sing this oldie but a goodie, oh, precious is the flow that made me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You're speaking the truth of what the perfect lamb has done. I don't need to do four times the work to feel clean. 
I need to remember the perfection of Jesus that cleanses me, and I need to return to him. See, you can do your work of serving the Lord, not trying to earn anything, but you can serve uh, the Lord knowing that he's already giving you all that you already need in him, that you are from the inside out clean because Christ, the clean, spotless, and holy lamb has come. We get to at this point, and this is the hard work sometimes, is silence the inner self and the serpent who tries to condemn because through Jesus we are pardoned, cleaned, adopted, and sealed. What does the Bible begin to tell us about the, the fullness of the, the pardon that we get in Jesus? Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. The, the presence of God isn't a scary place that you need to run away from. It's the place where your heart longs to find its meaning and it's free for you to go in again. Here, the news, the text, God isn't a million miles away and too far away for you to see. God is here. The path is clear. Will you run towards him with that news? Will you keep him at a safe distance or continue to run and hide? The decision ends up being yours. What will you do with the news of the blood of Jesus? Will you run away or will you run near? Today, I'd say if your conscience feels unrelenting, if the weight of your shame feels too heavy for you, if you have trusted Jesus and lean into following him, but you still just feel the gap, you just still feel so far off, way too dirty, way too full of shame to come close, here's, here's my ask for you. We ask the Lord to help you with that. Because our, our petition and our hope all, all year and even moving forward, we don't want to drop it once 23 is over, that we become a people of prayer. Would you go to the Lord in prayer? This is the reality of what your gospel tells me, but I'm not feeling it. Will you, will you help me? Holy Spirit, will you help me with fresh eyes see the fullness of what Jesus has done? And ask the good Father to defend your heart and your mind from yourself and the serpent. I've got to believe that there's at least one person who needs healing from the feelings of shame that haunt them. I'll just say that maybe this is the day that God has slated to give you that fully. The, the shame that we feel isn't, isn't the gift that a good father wants to give us. If you are covered, God says to your soul, come out of hiding, there's no reason to fear. Come, draw near. If you aren't following Jesus and, and you know the voice of condemnation well, I, I just continue to remind you, God hasn't sent Jesus to steal from you. He wants to give you. He wants to give you that pardon. He wants to give you the gift of his son. He wants to give you full and complete forgiveness. It's only applied through repentance and faith, though. You say to the Father, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I can't fix. I can't atone. I can't deal. I can't even get close. Would you give me the gift of your son? I'm leaning into him. I'm going to trust him from now on. I'm going to turn away from my old ways and believe in him. This is the doorway, the narrow doorway of the kingdom of God. The beautiful message about that doorway, there's only one way in through Jesus. The beautiful message is you don't have to earn your way in. You turn to it and you lean into it and you ask the Lord to help you. Maybe for one, today's the day that you walk in. And maybe for another, it's the day that you walk out of the shame that haunts you constantly. We'll take communion today, band. You guys can come back up. All of this, whether it is the 
the healing of shame and a condemning conscience or the entry into the kingdom of God. All of it is remembered and celebrated through the table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We will sing a song, have a couple moments of prayer. And then the table will be open, and the hope is that the bread and the cup would encourage your soul. The ability to draw near, the ability to be clean, the ability to be in the family of God, the, the ability to say it's been paid for and paid in full it only comes through the work of Jesus. That's why remembering when we come each and every week of the table, not my work but yours, your body and blood or shed, and that's why I'm safe. So I pray that you would come and be encouraged at the table. You don't have to be a member to take. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. Friends, I'll just encourage you if shame has been you're constant. The Lord wants to help you with that. Would you lean into him and ask him for help? We'd be happy to pray with you if you'd like about that. But the shame and the unrelenting weight of a conscience, the Holy Spirit has uh, something better for you and I just pray that you would ask for help for that. If you've been navigating around God at a safe distance, my hope for you is that, and that would just be over. That you come to the Lord and say, man, I, I need you to come into the family of God. The God who destroys shame and destroys the sin that we have. Will you stand and pray with me?